Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Contractor Evolution. Today's conversation is about conscious leadership what it is, why it matters, and how to access more of it. And we're going to delve into this topic through the experience of one of my favorite Breakthrough Academy members, Mason Marquis. I'm not supposed to have favorites, but whatever, sue me. Now, Mason started his business very early. He founded his painting company, Spray Tex, in Dallas-Fort Worth at the age of 21, and in five short years, scaled it up from 500K a year to north of 5 million in annual revenue. With an insane drive, a will to win, Mason grew his business at an unrelenting pace. But in the midst of building sales teams, dealing with issues, developing production managers, etc., he began to realize something really profound that I think many of you can relate to. Growing for the sake of growing was not sustaining him. That need to be validated and seen as a success, which got his motor revved in the early days, was no longer motivating him the way it used to. The inherent stressors of contracting were piling up inside him. Frustration was turning into outright anger. He wasn't showing up as a leader the way his team deserved. And he didn't recognize the hardened exterior that had begun to develop. And his business, his relationships, and his sense of purpose were all suffering as a result. The reason Mason is on the show today is because I know for a fact many of you listening are going through this inner journey as we speak or you're about to. And sometimes hearing about someone else's hardship can help you sort out your own. So let's dive into conscious leadership with Mason Marquis. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Mason, it's so good to see you, my friend. You too, Benji. It's been a while. Uh, Congrats on the wedding in Spain. It looked absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. Welcome home. So, okay, let's start here. You started your business at 21, a ripe tender age. Talk about the last, whatever, five, six, seven years it's been. Like you've scaled from half a million dollars in in that like nascent first year to you're up to five and I think growing beyond that quite quickly. Uh, Can you take, could just take us through the business journey of your 20s and, and specifically like what was driving you? Yeah, I mean, it all started with an entrepreneurial seizure. Um, I just knew in, in college, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to have freedom. Um, it, it was really about control and money and ego, just like all the good things that drive most entrepreneurs. And that's, that's what I went after head first. And we grew very quickly. Uh, it was pretty chaotic and destructive the first few years, um, I was driven by adrenaline and constantly wanting and seeking validation. And I got a lot of it. I mean, the business, it performed. We did well. Um, Obviously, I had good people surrounding me, great partnerships. um, But it was chaotic. Chaotic how? Like just the typical sort of like the typical messiness of a young business? Uh, Was it chaotic for you on the inside? Like what was was sort of... I guess what I'm interested in is like, what was the growth journey for you as a, for you as a person, for you as a man along the way? I think that's the part 
about this whole experience of being a business owner that's most rewarding. Um, it was very chaotic internally. You know, the the stress, the overwhelm of, you know, customer complaints, financial issues, um, even potential lawsuits to failed partnerships. It was constantly grinding and, and showing me that just how immature I was. Mm-hmm. Immature as a leader, immature growing the business. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with age, but the business just was able to point me in the direction of all the things inside of me I needed to work on. Mm -hmm. And on the outside, you know, we were hitting the revenue goals. We were, you know, oftentimes hitting the profit goals. I was building a great team around me, but there was still more work to be done. And I, I ended up discovering that I was chasing this never ending goalpost that's revenue and status. And it just no longer served me It no longer fulfilled me. And it wasn't, it wasn't what I was meant to do. Where do you think the never ending goalpost came from? Have you done some reflection since and sort of discovered what, what you were trying to prove or who you were trying to prove wrong or how you were trying to be seen like what like what was the you went you went from like a, a small little you know basically something akin to a student painting franchise to a really substantial nearly enterprise level business in your mid 20s most there's a lot of people in their 40s who are trying to crack a million for the first time and you did this so fast was there something that just like i don't know some demons a ghost something that was just like really pushing you to do it at that pace yeah, I think a lot of it's inherited it just from society. You know, we, I think one of my big books of inspiration at the time was 10X and, you know, God bless Grant Cardone, but I don't know if, I think I took that message to heart and then some. Uh, but if you go a little bit deeper, I think what really drove me was, I guess, fear of rejection like this deep wound, this fear of rejection where I needed to be validated and I could validate myself through business. And I found that I had a, you know, the skill set, the resources, the people around me to really, to do that. Mm. And it's of course, external validation. And I, I still struggle with it. Mm. I mean, there are still times where I put too much of my stock as a person in the businesses I'm running or the people that I'm leading or the win of that day. That's a really interesting way to put it. Too much stock into those things. Um, when did the light begin to come on for you? And what, like, was there a point where you're like, holy smokes, just like going from one to two million, two to five million beyond is like not filling me up anymore. It's not, it's not uh, putting anything in my cup the way it once was. Was there, was there a part of this journey where it really became, it, it started to become clear for you? I don't know that there was a revenue equivalent or a revenue mark or a team size where I began to discover that there's got to be something more to this growth thing than just numbers for the sake of numbers or money for the sake of money. Mm. I think it was just a part of my growing process. Uh, Great mentors, great leaders involved in lots of programs, continuing to read and just tapping into Okay, a lot of people talk about this why thing, like, it's easy to say my family, it's easy to say like financial freedom, but, you know, what's really beneath that. And it wasn't until I started investing heavily in my personal life, 
like this relationship thing, I keep failing at uh, relationships with partners. And I knew something like I've got coaches in business, I've got coaches in leadership, I've got fitness coaches, I need a coach for relationships. So I, I decided, all right, I'm done with failed relationships, let me go get some help. And when I started working on myself uh, to benefit me personally in my personal life, I realized how big of an impact it made on me as a leader Hmm. and just how much of a needle mover therapy was and how I showed up to my business. So interesting to me how the human condition is just like fraught with people who are so incredibly um, developed and sophisticated in one arena and there's like zero crossover to another arena. You think there would be, but it's like, I'm amazing at business. I'm really good at personal finance. My body's in shape. My mind is focused, but I suck at relationships and I can't, I can't make one last for the life of me. It's like what it, it does. It's not, it's not immediately obvious from the outside looking in. And I think this is part of the growing up experience that, that, that there isn't going to be some overlap. You think there's, you think oh, if I'm competent here. I'm going to be at least half decent over there. That's not the case in, in many instances. Um, Along this, along the journey, you kind of have stumbled into this, this, this concept, this philosophy, which is what I really want to talk to you about today, which is the idea of, of conscious leadership. So in sort of, give me like the, the Mason Marquis, like definition of conscious leadership, and then talk about why that matters. Yeah. I think like any phrase or any word, it can easily get overused and just totally lose its meaning. Um, for me, it's more of like an experience. It's more of a feeling, but I'll, I'll just describe it um, simply. And it's just to show up authentically. And I know that word's also an overused, almost platitude at this point, but showing up authentically is being aware of all the trauma, the habits and patterns that kind of run the show for you. Um, and having enough awareness to know when to ask for what you need, set boundaries, or just simply create space so you can show up in a healthier, more grounded way for the people in your life and mostly for yourself. Mm. And so in this, you know, this philosophy really does apply to more than just business. And once I got onto this and I started really discovering more about this journey, I realized this affects my relationships with my family. This affects my relationships with my employees, my partners, my spouse. Um, and so I've kind of gone down that rabbit hole the last couple of years and really focused on showing up authentically for myself and others. Here's a question. How conscious do you think the contracting space, broadly speaking, is? What I run into a lot in the contracting space, and I'm, you know, I'm guilty of it, is a lot of fear-based um, decision-making and fear-based leadership and, and codependent relationships. So I would, I would say largely unconscious and that goes for most industries, but you know, this is my experience. This is my industry that I know well, and I see a lot of fear running the show. Talk more about that, the fear-based decision-making. What does that look like? Give me an example. Um, where do you think it comes from? Like what, what, what's going on there? Well, fear affects every entrepreneur 
and every domain of your business. So like marketing, for example, one thing I see a lot of is people, they're afraid to spend the money. You know, they think marketing is an expense. They're afraid of, um, they're afraid of commitment. You know, they don't want to spend the money on the best marketing company or they don't want to spend the money on, on ads because they're afraid that that's, that's, a, that's failure. Mm-hmm. I should be getting all my business on word of mouth or um, whatever story they tell themselves. And fear can really drive sales. I'm learning that this year more than ever. You know, I've always been able to build effective sales teams and hire great salespeople. And we've just, you know, every year our KPIs get better and better. And the beginning of this year was a real reality check. Like, hey, you know, this this market is telling you to step your game up. And the people who have shown up and been honest with themselves and, you know, use my support and the support of the company to get through this, they've excelled. But I've had some producers that have done well for me for years that are showing up with a little bit more fear and it's really affecting their ability to sell, Mm -hmm. whether that's lowering the price, uh, but it's mostly in their way of being. So when you're interacting with a customer in their home and you're driven by fear and you're driven by fear of loss, it, uh, it doesn't take an expert to realize like that's just not going to be effective long-term. That's just not going to produce the results. And so dealing with confidence and inner self-worth has been a big challenge for me and all my, my salespeople this year. How, how do you think fear uh, you like, I, I love this phrase you use like fear is running the show. Have you thought much about how fear affects the long-term trajectory of a business? And I, th- there, sorry, that might seem like an obvious yeah. question. It's like people go, well, yeah, I know. It's like you play scared, you play small, you don't take risks, uh, no risk it, no biscuit. Like, like we sort of like understand this on a surface level because of the messaging we're told by Grant Cardone or other influencers. We sort of like, we hear it in sound bites, but I don't actually hear that often like a nuanced exploration of how letting fear run the show really does affect like the long-term shape of the graph. Yeah. I think a fear-based business and a fear-based culture creates an element of unsustainability. Mm -hmm. You're, you're not trusting yourself. You're not trusting the business. You're not trusting the market. And it, it has caused me and causes me to make bad decisions um, many times, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly around hiring, like when to hire, who to hire. You know, it's just, I can't think of how fear hasn't impacted my business. Like I I can't think of a domain or a, a situation where fear brought up in me hasn't negatively impacted my business. There's a, and you know, um, it's sorry, sometimes it's, yeah, it's just uh, fear is okay. Like it's something I accept. It's how do I deal with the fear? Because fear is trying to send me a message. Mm-hmm. And so once I get a better relationship with fear and I, I start to become aware of the fear inside me, I can make more conscious decisions. Mm-hmm. Better relationship with fear. I want to talk about that in a sec. There's a um, yeah. 
There's a data point here I want to chuck out, and I'll, 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 I'll preface this by saying you're a successful entrepreneur going through his own journey. You don't work for the CDC. You're not, you know, a trained mental health expert, but I just want your take right. on, I just want your take on this. I just want your take on this. The construction, the, the construction industry has the second highest rate of suicide in the U S which is 53.3 people per hundred thousand workers. That's behind only oil and the oil and gas sector, oil and gas and mining sector. Uh, that is four times higher than the national average. And get this, that is five times higher than work-related deaths in the same industry. That's a stat from the CDC in 2002. How do you think this conversation around consciousness, fear, conscious leadership, and that data point intersect? Do you, do you, when I just like, bring, when I bring up that sort of that factoid, is there some, is there a way that it connects to this conversation? You know, this industry is all I really know. I've, I've definitely dabbled in real estate, but construction and project-based contracts is all I know. Mm. And what I do know is it's incredibly stressful. The moving parts, the breakdowns, the failures. I mean, just this last week, we had probably two separate flooring issues on different projects where, you know, our teams damaged floors. It, I can't say that I'm totally shocked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to hear that statistic it's there are moments where my relationship with this business is not healthy where i'm like why did i choose to get into a business right. with hundreds of people driving around every day and painting houses and standing on ladders and in homeowners houses like what does a person care about more than their home maybe their kid yeah um it's a very sensitive business yeah and i know Big struggles with contractors can be like cash flow if you're doing huge projects, um, getting burned by GCs. Like there's just a lot of scary inevitabilities Stuff. in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could totally see somebody um, letting it get the best of them. I've seen it happen where people let this business and this industry in themselves, um, not taking care of themselves, mm-hmm. it can it can destroy you. There's something about the physical reality of it. Like there's, you know, we are not, you don't, you're not uh, painting a house from your computer at a coffee shop. Um, You're not building a building from an iPad on your couch. Like you have, you are forced out there in natural reality, which is pretty unforgiving. Um, It's not to say that other professions aren't, but there's, there's something about that that creates the pressure cooker that it is. And then I think the cash flow is a big thing. The, the prized possession of the customer part is a big thing. Um, The, um, the, the masculine nature, it's not to say there aren't female tradespeople and super successful female entrepreneurs in this space, but it is predominantly male. They don't ask for help that really well. They don't process emotions that well. Um, and it's, it's, it's no joking matter, but like, I, I think that that is a part of, I don't know, I, I, I want to get, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do some more research on this data point and, and I think bring it up in other conversations because I find it pretty interesting and there's something going on there. Um, Okay, better a better relationship with fear. What, what, tell us a little bit about your personal journey. What are the practical steps that you've taken on this within yourself, and then by extension within your company? Most of the work I've done with fear has been with my counselor, and and being aware of it. I think at first I wasn't even aware that I was feeling fear. 
And so that's a whole process to learn language and learn bodily sensations because emotions are stored in the body. Um, and to really be able to read that is it takes practice. Um, what has the awareness of fear done for me in my business? Well, it really affects the way I show up because when I used to show up as a leader unaware and just ruled by a run by fear, um, my conversations can be more sharp. My motivation can be unclear and the boundaries I set with people can be wishy-washy because I'm afraid they're going to leave or I'm afraid I'm not going to get the results I want. Um, so it, it heavily, it heavily influences the way I show up. And so now when I'm aware of my fear, I've got to process through that, whatever that means for me in that particular moment. And even sometimes it means just taking a break, like stepping away from the business, going on a walk, doing some anger work, doing some journaling and coming back with a term used called grounded when I'm more grounded and not feeling triggered or in the drama of my fear, I can better show up as a leader. What, what is anger work? It sounds sort of like an out there sort of like woo woo thing, but yeah. I, like I, um, what, what is that for you? Are there, are there practical steps? Is there an exercise? Like how do you, why, why is it a part of your kind of your self leadership game? By no means am I an expert on this. So I just want to preface sure. by saying that, but for me, I've learned some anger work with my counselor, which can look like, um, you know, physically exerting myself, whether it's like grabbing a towel and trying to rip it and just really straining and feeling all the anger, feeling all the fear in my body. Um, where like this morning, I was definitely in the drama about some things and I went upstairs and I, I practiced using my tennis racket and just let out some, some anger and help myself get connected to what, what was the source of that? It couldn't have been because a client was upset or a project failed or this didn't get paid. Like that kind of stuff is normal. Mm. So what was beneath that? And I remember sharing with my partner right before this call, Jason, he's a big part of my journey. I shared with him what, what I did and what happened. He's like, what was the source of it? You know, what was the source of your anger? And I, I still think this morning I'm trying to give it meaning, but I think we all have deep anger and deep fear that we haven't dealt with the source of, mm. and it comes up easily. Mm. And if I'm not aware of that, I would have brought that anger maybe into this meeting, maybe into this podcast. <laughs> it, it totally would have affected the way I showed up. You think of the, I think of the image, uh, you can, you, like everyone sort of has this, uh, you know, they've seen a clip on Sports Center, TSN, or that maybe they're a golf watcher, but you see the image of the golfer who's like on the 17th hole and he's not having the best round and then he and then he three putts and he goes from like, you know how golfers are. They're like quite serene. They got their shirt tucked in, they tip their cap, and then they go from that and in an instant the putter's like bent and in the lake and they're like storming off the hole. Like I mean, that's just a cartoony example, but I it's just yeah. it's it's a good visual of like 
it's you know that anger was there since he teed off on the on the first round. It was probably there when he was practicing his swings in the morning. It just it it sort of builds and builds and builds, and then there's like that release valve where it shows up. Uh, you know, in this example, in a pretty embarrassing, not super functional way, you got to finish your round without a putter. But it's um, I just you know I, I don't know why I like glom onto that that specific example, but I I, th- I think that there's a business version of that as well. You're driving around in your truck and you're having more or less okay morning but there's something that a client says that just pisses you off. You lash out at them. Then you go back to your, your office. You lash out at your office person. You, you take it home with you that night. And, and it could like, if you know, going back to this idea, if you're unconscious, that can literally just sort of bleed through the rest of your week, the rest of your month, the rest of your life. If it's not something that's sort of managed to some degree. Absolutely. It's uh, you know, what you're describing with the golfer is rage and, I think I used to experience rage quite a bit, especially as a teenager. Um, I was definitely that guy that punched holes in the wall. Mm. And there's such a big difference between healthy anger, which you can embrace and control and experience fully and rage. And I think now I let healthy anger give me information about what I want to change, whether it's a new boundary or access to something within that I want to heal versus rage, which put totally me in this cycle. Of totally like, uncontrolled. You have it's it's yeah. completely you have zero. There isn't a single rein you have on that emotion. It's it's acting through you. I love that distinction you just made between healthy anger and rage. It's a it's very important. And when I was experiencing rage in my business, I took it out on one guy in particular. He's he's my best friend. Um, I grew up with him and he ended up coming and working for me. And I remember I would become afraid and angry and I would just lash out and rage and he would kind of shut down and then I would feel shame and guilt. And it was like rage or fear, anger, shame and guilt, fear, anger, shame and guilt. And it was just this cycle over and over and over again to the point where like we had this relationship where he showed up in a way that was really inauthentic. I showed up in a way that was really inauthentic and we were codependent, very unhealthy Mm. and just had this, and we still have elements of that that are are still there. Mm -hmm. Um, But we had to, we had to work through it in conjoint sessions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like go to counseling together and realize like what part of my unconscious trauma is touched by his and vice versa where we keep triggering each other. And I just, I feel free from a lot of that guilt and shame. That must've been a fun moment when two like macho business guys have to go to counseling together and look at each other and talk about their feelings. That's pretty interesting, man. So you 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 mentioned, uh, sorry, go ahead. Maybe it comes from a source of desperation, but now it's like, when we have issues, we're like, yeah, let's book an appointment with Sarah. We need to work on this. Like we realize this is just the next step. This is the action we have to take if we're committed to having a healthy and loving relationship with Mm -hmm. one another. Mm -hmm. Cause that's what these relationships are. Like for me, business is about love Mm -hmm. and I've got to be able to have healthy, loving relationships with the people I work with. If I can be congruent with what I'm talking about here today. You mentioned something offline that I just want to bring up because I, I find it a very catchy 
it's a catchy sentence, and I think I think on some level it speaks to me too personally, which is this idea of discovering the victim within. So, do we all feel sorry for ourselves? I mean, what what is what does that sentence mean? I know from my experience that I have I have a victim in 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 me. I think we all do, but I can speak from my experience, and that's yeah, when I'm triggered and I'm in the drama of whatever it is that I'm going through, like this most recent example, this, this water issue, I had a painter leave a sink on overflowed. There's water damage all over the floors in this really nice house. And yeah, I mean, it, it brought up some victim rage where like, how could this happen to me? And just me feeling like it happened to me. Mm instead of being open and curious. And I think we all understand that concept, but what most people are prescribed or they think they need to do is just shift their mindset. Like there's some type of switch you can just turn and go, I'm no longer a victim. Now I'm empowered and I take full responsibility and I'm open and I'm curious and I'm excited to learn how to fix this. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just not dealing with how you really feel. That's, as trying to mask it or cover it up with intellect. So sometimes when you're feeling like a victim, you just have to accept it mm-hmm. and like let yourself be in the moment, be in that drama mm-hmm. of being a victim. And until you've fully processed it, you can't just turn on a high responsibility ownership mindset. I think that's where we like, we have a little bit of a job to do as educators and as leaders that it's okay to have negative emotions. It's okay to feel like a victim, be aware of it and learn how to process it healthily. I've always felt like what you just said about it, like it's okay. People conceptualize it too much or they intellectualize it too much. I've always found that, that this, you know, when we're talking about, like we're talking about therapy, we're talking about counseling, we're talking about doing inner work. We're in a second going to talk about how to extend that to your team. This genre of thought, the thoughtosphere that, that, that sort of like occupies this space is I think a fickle one for people because while there's incredible value to be had within it, if you read the right book and connect with the right counselor or find your own spiritual practice, whatever. There's also this other half of the thoughtosphere, which for a lot of people like me feels surface and airy and sort of performative and done to t- done because it makes for great social media posts that everyone loves and everyone applauds you for. And I've had so many moments in my journey where I'm like, I am freaking angry or I'm sad or I'm feeling sorry for myself. And there's somebody either in my personal life close to me, like I'm traveling with them or I, or I just know them who sort of like really, I don't know, like oversimplifies or reduces the complexity of the experience. You just be like, well, why, you know, it's like they distill this insanely real experience for you to this, like, well, why don't you just like take the high road or like, why don't you just turn the other cheek? And it's like, you, d- like be like, I want this to suck for you too. Like, can you at least, like at least acknowledge how 
my misery for a second. I can't skip to the the high road until my little lived experience here uh, gets you know validated by someone else. And so I, I feel like you know so many times we miss the it's okay to feel your feelings part. It's okay to be a victim part. Be a victim for a second. Uh, we just kind of skip to like what we think we're supposed to say or how it's supposed to look for the outer world. And I think that's for, for I think for a lot of people, I can say men in particular, why they kind of miss the boat on this whole conversation. Yeah, I think it's scary. It's scary to talk about how you feel. It's scary. I've noticed with some of my older uh, staff, the guys, they it's they don't even want to admit it to themselves. So there's almost like a disconnect from within and uh, how they're showing up. Um, and I don't, I don't blame people for it. I understand that there's fear around this. I understand that it's just as easy to relive, if not easier, the habits, patterns, and cycles that you've done your entire life. Mm -hmm. It's familiar. Mm -hmm. It's familiar to fear, feel fear, dial up adrenaline, and just start achieving, achieving, achieving. It's worked for you your whole life. It works for you now. I understand why this is not a rabbit hole you want to go down. For mm -hmm. mm -hmm. for some people, they feel that fear, a bunch of cortisol kicks in and they start to freeze mm -hmm. and they just disassociate and pull themselves out of the moment. And that works for them. It worked for them when they were really young. It works for them now. It's what they're used to. It's what they're familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, to then see that within and try to work through that. And, you know, I hate to use this cliche, but rewire or set a new habit. It's a big undertaking. And so I understand why people avoid it. You've gone the extra mile uh, where this is concerned. So, I, and, I, and I'll just sort of tee this up for you. I, I want you to talk a little bit about sort of the spray text onboarding process and where this whole conversation fits into how you try to indoctrinate the DNA and the values of your business into your new team members. And then I also want you to talk a little bit about sort of the, what you make available for, for, for your team yeah. uh, in perpetuity. So at both my companies, uh, both painting companies, we, the biggest impact we can have as far as conscious leadership goes is how we show up. So who I am and who I'm being is the most important work I can do. There's no like trick or course or thing I could offer that would nearly have as big of an impact. Because if I'm open and candid and transparent, it allows others to feel safe and do the same. And as I grow, um, a lot of my team is growing with me. So part of the onboarding process, part of the interview process is I'm going to show up in that way. And for some people, um, it's obvious that that scares them or it's obvious that it's not a culture they want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. You know, they want something more familiar. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking for the people that are willing to grow and develop. Like that is the number one thing I look for with the new hire in the last couple of years is are they open and willing to grow and develop? You're saying a lot of people kind of, they, they want to go back to that more transactional, less conscious environment because that's where they feel safe. So, but uh, how, is this just an intuitive sense you have? Do you ask them questions? Does it, does it show up in their past? I mean, how, you know, can you speak to how you quantify that in the interview process and how you make those personnel decisions? 
Yeah, I, I definitely can. I think there are some things that are a little bit tactical, but mostly the better I've understood myself and some of my own triggers and my own responses, adaptations, the more easily I see it in others. So I can easily recognize when someone's talking about their previous employer, how much victim rage is there, how much it's present and not dealt with. Mm-hmm. I can pick it up right away. Mm-hmm. And you start to hear these language patterns, these stories about then this happened, then this happened to me. And so, yeah, it's intuition, but you can hear it if you're present and you're listening and you're not just today. I want to go buy headphones for this uh, podcast. Thank you. And I'm looking at this guy at Best Buy and he's he's not there. He's just on his He's on his phone trying to search for something for me. And I'm like, dude, I don't care how much money this costs. Just find me the headphones. And he's like, we don't have this. We don't have that. And he's just totally disconnected. Mm. And I'm thinking like, just put your damn phone down and be here and listen to me. I'm telling you exactly what I need. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it took him five minutes to grab something that was right in front of both of us and hand it to me and say like, have a nice day. (laughs) And so I think part of it is just like being present and showing up because as an interviewer, you can be just like the guy at Best Buy. Mm. You're reading off your list of questions, you're listening for the answers, and you're not actually present to yourself and the person there and feeling the feelings that come up Mm -hmm. Uh, because your body knows when there's bullshit. I think that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you, Mason. Like we spent so much time on this show talking about the tactical and the practical and the checklist and the SOP and the best practices and all that stuff is good. Uh, but there is sort of a bit of an iceberg thing where there's a whole hidden subtext underneath that I don't think we talk about enough. And um, your Best Buy example is a good one. You could you could come up with a billion in, in a more sort of tradesy context. Someone who's like super focused on the quality control checklist at the end of a project when really what they need to do is just look the customer in the eye and say, I'm really sorry about this. And how could like, you know, have a moment. Um there, it, you know, there's all this conversation around how to do objection handling in sales when really if you just like spent five minutes hanging out with this person and being who you are in front of them, you wouldn't have the fucking objections in the first place. So there's like, I, I, I think, I, anyway, it's just, it's just an interesting comment. And I think that I think there's, I don't know, I, I feel a desire to kind of lean into this more with our content and have more conversations about this stuff. Um so there's so there's there's part of this is around who you decide to bring on the team and who not to. What, what how do you reinforce that in those first few days? I don't know orientation meetings, the onboarding process, their first month of training is is this is this thread picked up after they after they get uh, after this the decision gets made to bring them on the team? Absolutely, it's uh, it's the part of my business I really enjoy being involved in directly. Um, I'll I'll put a PowerPoint presentation together and we do an onboarding uh, meeting, but it's, it's heart centered. It's from my heart. This is what we're building. This is why we're building it. This is what this uh, core value means. This is what this one means. And when we talk about transparency, it's easy to say, yeah, we're open with you. You be open with us. All right. Like next core value. Well, I really like to go deep with it and talk to them about, 
situations and interactions and what does it mean to be transparent with yourself? And that's where people start to kind of raise an eyebrow. What do you mean be transparent with myself? And we talk about feelings. We talk about emotions. We talk about experiences. And I can kind of gauge their experience level having that conversation. And it's at that point I offer new hires and anybody on my team to go see a counselor. And luckily, we have a counselor that I work with directly. My wife works with. A lot of my team works with and tons and tons of friends. And I trust her. I know her process. I know her pretty intimately. And I think at first when I offer that, people are like, is this a company counselor that's going to spy on me and, you know, be an informant to the boss? But it's really all about, it's all about the employee's health. Uh, obviously there's confidentiality and frankly, I don't really care what you talk about when you go meet with Sarah. I just know you're going to be on a journey Mm. and that journey is going to begin for you. So I offer eight weeks in a row and then once a month in perpetuity, all paid for by the company. And sometimes it's not an offer. Sometimes it's a request. (laughs) If I'm having an issue with an employee and I feel like I can't get there, I can't We've tried the tactical, we've pulled the levers, we've done the scripts, we've had the coaching. What's in their way is something within, Mm. whether it's like setting boundaries with customers, setting healthy boundaries at work, uh, or dealing with that, you know, excessive fear that we talked about earlier. I recommend that they go get some support, some help from Sarah. Mm. Um, And that's been really beneficial for us. Even when sometimes we discover with that particular employee, they didn't work out. You know, I have people that have gone to counseling. We've really coached them through this. We've really asked for what we needed and they've tried and they've started that development journey, but they discovered on their own with their own autonomy, this, this job, this role is not living true for me. And I consider that a win. It's like, I think some of my colleagues would think you invest in people that are getting ready to quit. Mm. It's like, absolutely. I want, I want us to really deal with it all the way. This is something that you, is this just a line item for spray text? Like this is just sort of like part of the mix of overhead for the company that you're willing to pick up the tab for. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I even really think about it. Yeah. Like I see the charges, I see the invoices, but, I don't even think about it. It's it's part of payroll. It's just part of having staff. How long how long has this policy been instituted and and what's the feedback or receptivity level been like with the team? Do they love it? Are they like this is weird? Mason's like kind of like off his rocker, like I let me just go paint houses. Like what's what's the conversation around the building? What's the vibe around the building as it relates to this thing you're trying? It's both. (laughs) It's both. I mean, I I think some people, especially newer people, as I've been more aware of who I bring on are like, this is incredible. Yeah. Like what kind of company does that? That's, that's amazing. Um, But there are definitely people who are like, this is woo woo bullshit. Like I don't, this, I don't subscribe to this. Mm -hmm. And that's challenging. You know, Mm -hmm. this is a culture I'm really serious about creating. And um, I think everyone comes across 
as receptive and open. But deep down, I think there are people on my team that have, they don't take issue in it, but they just don't see it as important as I do. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Like that's something that we're working through. Yeah. Yeah. How has this influenced, you talked a little bit about how it's influenced your hiring philosophy. How has it affected, benefited, improved how you lead your people in particular? I think the biggest takeaway is we have real open feedback. Mm -hmm. People feel safe being open and sharing their truth. In like one-on-ones and stuff. In one-on-ones and groups. Like on Friday of last week, we had a group meeting and we have this whole section all about like saying what's so. Like say, we call it like a radical candor. Yeah. And we just have this 15, 20 minute session where it's like, this is where you bring opportunities, problems, breakdowns, and say it like it is. Mm-hmm. And last week we had a salesperson who sold an $18,000 project on Monday. The project manager's talking to him on Thursday and the sh- scope shrinks to $9,000. And the salesperson's really pissed. And he's like texting me about it. And he's like, what did you tell this person? Kind of blaming the the project manager. And so we just had this open dialogue, all 12 of us, where the salesperson said how they felt. And I said, and what story did you tell yourself about what the production manager said? And I kind of led and facilitated this moment where he could really be real mm-hmm. about how he felt. And he, he definitely felt like a little bit of a victim, you know? And it was obvious to him and it was obvious to everybody else. And the project manager got to share how he felt. And it was this really safe and inclusive place where not only did we all learn how to avoid that practically mm. on the language we use with customers and keeping them confident and safe in that project handoff process, but as a team, I think everybody learned, like, I can show up for myself in this group. I can say what's on my mind. Well, and there's bonding and cohesion that kind of happens as a result of these moments, let's call them, these conversations. Um, it's been my experience that, like, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say fully, like, 90% of the contracting space, which I realize is an umbrella term. We're kind of encompassing construction, painting, landscaping, uh, you know, roofing, specialized trades. But if you work on or around buildings, I'm talking to you, um, the, like, it, it, I say fully 90% of, of the workforce here sort of circulates through job sites and from company to company basically with um whether they realize it or not sort of this this bubbling resentment a layer beneath what they're sh- what they're showing up with on site towards their boss their coworker the client the guy at the paint store whatever because there's never there's never any structured or productive um release valves where sort of that emotional toxicity gets just just like like you get rid of it through a conversation like the one you facilitated and that just mounts and builds for years sometimes decades and you know you wonder why we have crazy turnover issues we have labor force issues we have apparently mental health issues like i mentioned earlier it's like if you're not doing what if you know mason if people aren't doing the work that you're doing with the team to make these conversations possible 
Uh, it's, it's no wonder all those things are true. And it's no wonder you're having a hard time keeping people around. It's no wonder that your office feels kind of low energy and like people are at each other's throats. So I think, um, yeah, I, th- I just think that's a very interesting, a very interesting example of your, your, your it was like a, a job site manager and a, and a salesperson kind of having issues with each other. Do you, do you notice how it's, affects your, like your one-on-one time when you're leading a salesperson, when you're, when you're leading a, a production manager, whatever, like what, how, how have the conversations or the tone or the outcomes even of those meetings shifted as a result of all this? We're able to deal with what's real for us much more easily in one-on-ones. Mm. They're, they're hyper productive. There's, there's no small talk. There's no going through the motions. We're showing up 100%, at least I am, uh, there to provide space or to give feedback. Mm. And sometimes I'm just, I'm there to listen and be a part of what they're experiencing, whether it's a customer issue or uh, right now one of my project managers really struggling with work-life balance. Mm. And what does that mean for him and his family and How's he been dealing with that? What practical steps can we take? And then we, then he realized and admitted, we are taking the practical steps. I am struggling with work-life balance because I've always struggled with it. And when a customer's upset, I don't know how to let it go. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to set a boundary. It's just, I worry about it all night. And those are those moments where we can just be really candid with each other and go, Hey, this, this doesn't work for me as an employer if it doesn't work for you. Mm. So let's get you some support. Let's work on this. But at the end of the day, if you're not happy and you're struggling with work-life balance and setting the right boundaries, it may not work out and that's okay. And there's been so much, there's been so much vulnerability on both sides that we can, we can put it all out there. And he can share with me exactly where he's at. And he's like, I'm still trying to process if this, if this role um, and who I am, my temperament is the right match. Mm. That's a practical conversation to have. You yeah. Know what I mean, it um, really is. Do you, have you thought about maybe like the way you used to do one-on-ones or GSR meetings or maybe how other people do their one-on-ones as this sort of, one person is presenting a version of themselves who is talking to the other person who's presenting a version of themselves. So if you do the math, there's actually three layers of separation between because the one person separated from their version, the version is separated from the version of the other guy or girl, and that person's version is separated from that. So it's really, it's really sort of like, I don't know, projected characters talking to each other about, at the end of the day, pretty menial shit while there's this whole like like inner truth, whatever happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it progressed for me. So at, for, at first it was, I became aware of who they were being. Mm-hmm. The disconnect between what they were saying and how they were coming across, whether it was resentful and angry on below the surface and you know, optimistic and talking the talk uh, above. And then it moved to, well, how do I feel? How do I experience? And when it was about them and it was about what I picked up in them, what I tried to do as a leader is fix it. 
So I would think, okay, this person's feeling down. This person's feeling angry. Like I need to pump them up. It's my job to fix them, pump them up, you know, change their mindset, get them back out in the field, cheer them on, and I'll get the results that way. And you know what? It worked sometimes. And so I would go into tricking myself that this is sustainable. This is what I can do. If I can pump them up and know them better than they know them, I can get the results I'm looking for and they can get the results they're looking for. But then it's moved to, you know what? They're responsible for how they feel and how they show up in this meeting and asking for what they need. And I'm going to be here and show up as myself and share my truth and support them the best I can. And I can't support people that aren't honest with themselves and honest with me about what they need. And I just, I kind of gave up trying to control that. What is your take on, um, so there's a school of thought around leadership, which is like you are sort of this like emotionless, cerebral, um, you deal in CEO speak, you're extremely logical and that sort of like archetypal character is who you need to show up for, for your people at all times. You could think of sort of like a military general character. You could think of the CEO of a bank type character where it's sort of, it's all very controlled. It's all very measured. It's all very manicure, manicured. What what's your take on that? What's your take on that? Do you show up to a one on one, and if you're feeling really bad, are you like I I'm really upset about X Y Z, or or do you do you think that there's value in sort of that stoic outer outer image when you're leading people in particular? When I first started, I definitely felt the need to be perfect, and I still do, and to show up as my best self and be the best and encourage the best and um. I've learned to accept that sometimes I just don't have it in me to show up for them. And I've learned to either reschedule the meeting Mm. and take care of myself or just start the meeting by saying, Hey, like today I don't have a ton of space and this is what I'm going through. This is what I, and practice a little bit of vulnerability. Like I'm a little stressed about, you know, a production related issue or customer related issue. And, you know, I don't want to bring that into the meeting, but I've got to own uh, what I'm going through right now. So, you know, and when you take ownership of how you feel and what you're going through, it creates a lot of safety in others. Because then it's not like I just pretended and got through the whole meeting. And maybe the message received by that employee was like, something was kind of off. Mm-hmm. Maybe Mason's mad at me. Maybe Mason's upset or maybe he's um, thinks I'm a waste of time whatever story they make up about it kind of gets dissolved. Well, this is a very sort of um, nuanced bit here because I think there's sort of, there's <clears throat> people can take either, either approach to this way too extreme. Okay. And so one is, you know, the Grant Cardone example where it's like very fierce, very sort of like traditionally masculine, no emotion, stoicism, which um, it, it is good for what it's good for, but it can, it can leave a trace of, um, I don't really know this person or I've worked for this guy or girl for seven years, but I, I f- still feel like I'm not, I don't, I'm not really connected with them. Um, 
and and it can scare people and it can exhaust people over time and it, it, there's a there's a lack of humanness to it and right. the other side of the spectrum is you kind of go too deep into the woo woo and you change your name to moonbeam and you start a life coaching business in a van and you make kombucha and you go from festival to festival and worship crystals and you're not like my dad has this great expression you know you can't be so heavenly bound you're no earthly good that's an extreme example so right. maybe forget about moonbeam, but let's say like moonbeam light. Like if you were like, if you were, if you maybe went, if you still owned a painting business and you went too heavy into this and you showed up every day and spent 30 minutes of your one-on-one -on -one talking about your feelings and using these as a personal therapy session, again, still an extreme example, but I, I, I think, um, I think people need to find the tightrope walk between I need to be, I need, I do need to have some degree of stoicism within me because business is chaos and calm, cool, collected is good for my people. But I also need to, like you said, um, acknowledge when I'm maybe not a hundred percent myself. And that, that is not, you know, showing up super emotional and kind of charged or triggered to a meeting uh, with a direct report, but it is maybe rescheduling because, hey, today's not the day, uh, at, you know, when you absolutely need to. You obviously don't, don't want to make a habit out of that. Um, or, or or occasionally seeing like, hey, I'm, I'm just like, I'm running at 70% today and I'm sorry. And so we're going to go through this, but this is kind of where I'm at. Here's why. Let's let's focus on you for the rest of the meeting. I just, it's just a comment I want to make on, on yeah. over leveraging to realizing that this kind of operates on a spectrum and realizing that I think the sweet spot is in the middle, like a lot of things. Where I'll disagree with you a little bit is I don't necessarily see it as a spectrum. I see it as like your degree of authenticity. Um, and for me as a business owner, I, I am frustrated when we're not hitting the results we want to achieve. And that frustration is giving me access to something that I want to change. So I, I just, I don't see a disconnect between emotions and results, like emotions and results play hand in hand. Right. And the healthier and more authentic, I'm able to express what I need and set boundaries with employees. It's like, I'm actually able to better articulate the results I'm looking for either out of behavior or just specific KPIs. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a lot of it is, Yes, there's a professional framework, a boundary I set as an owner, as a leader where, yeah, I can't let somebody all the way into my deepest, darkest, creepy, crawly secrets, but <laughs> right. I, I still need to be vulnerable. Right. And right. I've got to, and typically it's about the matter at hand, which is the last couple of weeks, you just, you haven't produced the results that you and I are committed to. And I want to have a conversation about what am I doing to contribute to that and what are you doing to contribute to that? How can we work through this? Because yeah. I'm a little scared right now as your leader. I'm a little nervous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's there's just no separation there. It's like my true grounded feelings are wisdom for me to help make decisions that impact results and relationships. It's also a more concrete and motivating way to express what you want. Saying you missed your goal because this is the goal and that's the number and you're not at it is is not it's very abstract for people who who whether they want to admit it or not deal better with emotions and feelings and sort of impacts where it's like, you know, we can talk about the numbers and how you're behind, but I also want to while we're talking about that mention sort of what this how I'm feeling about it. 
how the you know how that affects the the broader company. When you get to that sort of level of pay dirt, you're communicating, you're having a conversation about results, but how they impact emotions. And I think for the the report who's who's working with you and being led by you, it it makes it real and it makes it a lot more motivating to go and do stuff. I, I know that from the people that I've led and I know that from the people who have led me. Uh, it is not a super, it doesn't light a fire under me just looking at a spreadsheet or looking at the CRM and being, oh, I'm 20% off. Whereas it does where I understand the broader implications of that miss. And so I think that's why it's important. What is... um. I want to I want to ask you this Mason like what you've you you know you you not just talk the talk you walk the walk you've done the work for yourself you you've implemented this as sort of a philosophy and value in your business and there's um there's you know money going out the door to to facilitate this for your team so it's worth asking like wh- what is your goal in in all this and why have you decided to make this commitment not just to yourself but to the people you lead I think I've learn this maybe from my partner, Jason, but I, I'm really playing with the idea that maybe I don't have a goal that's out there. It's like a once I hit or once we do type of goal. Mm-hmm. I think my goal with this is more experiential. Like I, I want to continue to experience love and consciousness and business. And I, I see it in the interactions with my employees. I see it in the interactions with my partner I've seen it in interactions with you, Benji. And like, that's what inspires me. That's what lights me up. And I think business and currently the painting business is a vehicle at which I get to express that. Mm. I get to express that love and consciousness and help people grow and heal and learn more about themselves and, and strengthen relationships. So that's what it's about for me. And I'm still discovering how does that what vehicles do I want to step into to continue to do that? Uh, but for right now, I'm, I'm really having a lot of fun doing it in my painting businesses. I think that the vehicle, I like that term, or I might use the term, the arena of business is a unique one for this kind of inner work. Like most people would associate um, this stuff with like a therapist's couch or a silence retreat or a medita- a group meditation event or some sort like some different arena that is in many ways detached from reality. You're sort of like you're cordoned off and you're put on the sidelines so that you can do the work and then you can come back to reality rested. The, I think the arena of business as a place to do this is unique in the sense that you don't get to go to the sidelines. You're on the field making plays, getting tackled, um, sometimes for a loss while you have to do all this. And I actually would make the case that that's a better, more practical, more real arena to do this work within because you're, you are girded against reality. You can't, you can't, fully detach. You can't fully detach to go and learn the stuff to come back. You have to learn it in the context, in the environment where you live, by the way, like like work is a big part of your life. And when you're not doing that, you're doing family, which is a whole other, which is a whole other quadrant of pressure cookers. So there's something like, I think there's something really interesting about bringing this to the business space in particular, because of what the business space brings to this work as a compliment. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's a, 
my business is a, is the source of evolution for me mm-hmm. as an individual. Mm-hmm. Like I get to practice it um, moment by moment. And it, it directly affects the way I show up as a leader in my household and as a husband. You know, it, it does apply to all domains. Yeah. Uh, business is just a really intense way to learn this and deal with it. Well, and it's 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 also a great place to do it because there you a business makes a profit and it creates resources and it cre- and it creates leverage and it gives access to things that people wouldn't have otherwise. Whether that be a counselor, whether that be a, a coach, whether that be something else uh, that, that that you know they're probably not going to be able to afford, or they just would make the decision not to do with their own after-tax dollars. And so that I, I like that way you frame it, where it's like this is a vehicle not just for the PNL, but it's also a vehicle for the evolution of myself and the people within it. And I think that's a very holistic and I suspect a very fun way of of doing entrepreneurship rather than just. I'm here to make money and I make money to invest in real estate and I invest in real estate to make more money so that I can invest. It's like, that's cool too. And you can still do all that by the way, but don't maybe close your eye or blind yourself to the other opportunity that, re- that it represents, which is a very human, albeit spiritual one. Um, let's close on this, Mason. If you could go back and talk to um, 21 year old Mason who's starting out and he's like fiercely motivated and, and, and ready to grind. And, and you just sort of like picture yourself in whatever 2017, what advice would you give to your younger self? Slow down, mm-hmm. slow down, slow down, experience those moments, slow down the actual growth of your company. And really like, discover for yourself what does it mean to grow this business what is this about what am i building here what am i called to do um what where are you running from so i think slow down is what i would tell my younger self i don't i don't regret building the business as quickly as i did but if i could whisper some advice to a younger me it would be to slow down how come did it rob you of joy? Did it create for not a good experience? You say you don't regret it, but you also would tell them to slow down. So what, what what's, why? I think my journey was more painful than it needed to be. Mm. And uh, I discovered that leading another painting company and watching his entrepreneurial journey. And you can learn these lessons in a loving, playful way. I learned them in a, you know, tough stressful, redlining constantly type of way. <laughs> and I think maybe I my character needed that. It needed the extremes to show me, hey, something's not right. Um, but if I had a different coach or mentor, uh, kind of like maybe my partner or some of my employees, maybe I could have learned to slow down and deal with things internally first before trying to go out and build a million dollar painting company to build a million dollar painting company. I love it, man. Let's, let's leave it at that. Uh, you've said it all. Let's get another visit down in Tejas again soon. Uh, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to, to talk with us today, Mason. Yeah. Thanks, Benji. 
Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Contractor Evolution. Uh, if you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it.